welcome everyone that's here and those of you joining us online and on the phone. Uh, this is Independence Day weekend. Tomorrow the offices will be closed. I'm assuming you knew that. Um, but it's a different time. Um, and I'm going to, in the prayer, I'm just going to offer a prayer asking the Lord to thanking him for the freedoms that we have, for the country we are, we get to live in and ask him if it be his will to let this great American experiment continue according to his will. Is that fair? I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to tell anyone how they have to think, but we love where we, we love where we live and it's got some things that need to change. As we all know, that's just the case of being human. But um, the fact that I get to stand up in front of people and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and, the, and, and participate in the ministry of reconciliation, there's a lot of places in this world where that cannot happen. And there's a lot of places in the world where if you were going to meet to worship God, you would have to do that in a basement, hiding with lookouts to make sure people aren't coming to your door. So let's just be grateful today for what we have, where we live, and who our God is. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we bless you. We praise you and thank you for who you are, for what you do in us, for us, and through us. Lord, thank you for this great American experiment. And it, <clears throat> we have our stuff, but we are so grateful to be able to hear about you, to be able to talk about you, to not have to hide whose we are. We thank you for the blessings that you've given to this nation. We thank you for the blessing it has been to the world. And we ask you, if it be your will, that it continue according to your will until you return. Lord, we're going to talk about Paul's first letter to Corinth today. And there's some stuff going on in that church. This is kind of an intro message, which you're aware of. But we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive what you want to say to us, because what Paul has to say to the people in Corinth is not all that different from what Paul, if he were here today, would say to us. So give us wisdom to see what you want us to see. Lord, and for me, stand in my shoes, give me your thoughts, speak with my mouth, so that your people hear your word for them today, not my words for them, but your words to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So, some background on Corinth, on the, on Corinth itself. It's an unusual city. Um, it's about 100,000 people. If you take 80,000 in the city proper, about another 20,000 um, in the kind of what we would call suburbans, but the, out, you know, the, the outskirts. Um, it was very famous, and it hosted what's called the Corinthian Games. So it was second only to the Olympics in the Roman Empire. And what made it so powerful after it had been decimated about 300 years before um, Paul was writing this letter, which I believe is in about 55 AD, uh, it had been decimated, and then it had been kind of built back up. Uh, because it was on an isthmus, which is just a, instead of, a boat having to go all the way around kind of dangerous territory, the sailors could pick the boats up and walk across a short piece of land, an isthmus, to put it back to get to where they're going. So because of that, they often stopped to rest, and there were lots of opportunities in Corinth. So it has been said that Corinth in that day, in about mid-century, mid-first century, was equivalent to New York, Las Vegas, and San Francisco all wrapped into one. 
So that kind of tells you what's going on there. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of, little bit of background. Paul planted uh, the church in Corinth, and you can read about that if you'd like to, in Acts chapter 18. And he, he, was, he, he was there to proclaim the gospel. There were some new converts. And he was getting ready to leave to go off and continue on his missionary journey. And God spoke to him in a dream and said, I want you to stay because many will be coming to Christ. So he stayed longer than he stayed any other place except when he was in prison um, for one, one and a half years. Um, after leaving them, he would receive reports as he did with all. That's how we get all these letters. Paul heard about what was going on in a particular church, and he would either offer them encouragement, offer them correction, or both. And the reports that he was getting about Corinth just a couple of years, two, three years after, after he had been there, were not good at all. The city, uh, in the city, and in, in, so think, have you ever been to Atlanta and you see Stone Mountain just outside of Atlanta? Uh, just this big rock, that, there's a mountain right there. Kind of like that. And on top of it was, a, was a, um, a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility. And she had many women that worked for her, or that goddess had many women that worked for her, about a thousand in, the, in, in Corinth, in the temple itself, and in the little sub-temples in the city, about a thousand temple prostitutes. Now do the math. There's a hundred thousand people, half of them women, so 50,000 people, and a 1,000 of them gave their bodies to the service of a goddess. And just so you know how pervasive that part of their experience was, in the region, if you wanted to talk about a young lady who was promiscuous, you called her a Corinthian girl. So what happened, in part, between that, the worship of Aphrodite... And the, the atmosphere of, we'll call it freedom in the area, in combination with the Greeks, who th those that were sophists that some of us believe later became Gnostics, and worship of Egyptian gods, Roman gods, and Greek gods, what kind of happened is that after a while, the culture of Corinth infiltrated the Christ culture of the church, and in some ways they became indistinguishable. Paul, when he writes this letter after getting these reports, sees five major issues in the church in Corinth, and they are as follows. If you're a note taker, this lets you know kind of how to read the, the book, the, the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. Unity in the body of Christ, chapters one through four. We're going to do chapter one today, and it's kind of an intro. Uh, the need for, I'm looking around to see if there's children. Are there any young children in the room? Okay, the need for sexual purity and fidelity, chapters 5 through 7. Issues with food, sacrifice to idols, chapters 8 through 10. Worship and the use of spiritual gifts in worship. What happens in a worship service is chapters 11 through 14, and then finally the absolute need for the resurrection to be central to, the, to Christianity, to the understanding of, of the gospel, and to worship, that is 15 and 16. So that covers, that covers the whole thing. So what Paul, what Paul does, he takes all these issues, and they are significant, and many of them, if not all of them, apply to the church in the West today. 
But he counters each one of them. His argument with each one of them is the gospel. So if you take all these things, if you list all these things up in a row, the thing that you would do on the bottom is just do an arrow circle like an Amazon smile with an arrow on each end. So everything that Paul talks about, these things are out of line because of the gospel. Here's how to think by using the gospel. And this is what we're about. The gospel. And the gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. News, notable events, weather, and sports. News. It's about some, supposed to be about something that's happened, something that has taken place, something that is already done. Advice is, if something like this comes up, here's some things that you might think about on how to react or respond. See, that's what we often forget about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that it is good news. It is done it is over, and we need to submit ourselves to Christ in accordance with his commands. The people in Corinth decided to use Christian words for their own benefit. See, when Paul planted this church, it was primarily blue-collar workers. Now, blue-collar, middle class, but we, middle class to us, we're, we're kind of middle class, most of us, so we're, we're pretty comfortable. And many of us work hard for a living. Use your hands, you're out in the sun all the time. People that work the steel and the iron, they're, I mean, this time of year they love, although it gets hot, the winter in January, not so much. It was those type of people that were primarily the responders. So you'll hear Paul say, many of you, you weren't all that big a deal. But over time, as, as Apollos came by, as Peter came by, as others came by, and preached the gospel to more and more people, the influential people, the patrons of the area, um, came into the church, and they didn't give up what the, who they were. When they came into the church, they started doing what they did out there within the church. And here's what I mean by a patron, just to get so that, and this isn't necessarily not completely for today, but keep these things in mind. The affluent people of the day were called patrons, and they wanted social standing and political power. So they would be benevolent toward or very nice to people who don't have as many resources as they do. So they would sponsor, like if they own land, they would, they would give a farmer a deal to go work the crops. But it was symbiotic. It wasn't just, I'm out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to help you. He expected from them loyalty. And for political response, so that when it was time for a vote or something like that, his people, the people that he was a patron to, would vote his way and would be out there politicking for him. And that works in the, in the body politic. That's um, someone, we were sitting in our front yard yesterday and someone came by canvassing and handing out a flyer for someone who is a, a candidate to be a state representative here in Michigan. So this particular candidate has people that work for them that go around to try to get the word out because the candidate can't be, can't walk down Crestbrook Drive and, and make it to everywhere else. So they have people that work on their behalf to canvas and to speak good things about. That's okay. But in the church, who I am out there is different than who I am here. How do I know that? Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
See, there's a mindset change when someone is in Christ. He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we're told that we're transformed by the renewal, not the removal, the renewal of our minds. Therefore, we should look at everything through the lens of the gospel. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations and teach them everything I've commanded you to do. That is all Paul's doing in the letter to Corinth. Now, I'm going to read it. It is lengthy. It's the whole chapter. But I think with the, with the, with the background you've been given, I know it's, there's a lot more, but with the background that you've been given, you should be able to hear some of these themes pop up. And this is just Paul laying out the first issue, and that is the problem with the unity in the church. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes is probably the guy that brought him the most recent report. And he's the one probably that's going to take the letter back to the church in Corinth. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Excuse me. Therefore, do not, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Now he starts to speak to the divisions. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with, with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What do I mean by this? One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So, they didn't have a big church building. They had house churches. And the people that own houses tend to be people that, in that area that have a little bit of resource. And so what happens, depending on who led you to Christ... One of those patrons would open their home up to allow people to worship there. But because it's their home and their patron, their, those that they patronize, that's backwards in our language, but those to whom they are patrons would gather with the person that they're most familiar with. And so if, if Paul says it this way, and Apollos, who was a great orator, you can read about that in Acts as well. Um, in Apollos, if, he, if you like how he speaks, and you like how, it's not that different than today if you get online, and wit, or if you, if you watch it on the television, which preachers do you listen to? Which ones do you really like? You might like, he doesn't preach anymore, so I'll use it, it's easy. You might like Robert Schuler, and someone else might like Dr. D. James Kennedy. Um, and, you know, and then all, the, all the, the health and wealth gospel people, you might, you know, yeah, I really like him. And, well, he said this. Well, yeah, but he says this. And we can, do, we can do this here. But when it actually divides the church, it's sinful. And Paul's response to that is 
Paul's not pulling punches. So still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize anyone except for Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized. I just think it's, it's when he's having someone pen this letter for him, he's probably speaking and someone goes, well, didn't, didn't you also baptize? So it's kind of this parenthetical here because they don't, they don't have delete. You know, and just scrap it out with a quill. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved. Now, I want you to notice that. Just, just a, little, a little parenthetical. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved. So strange tense in Greek that we don't have in English. Remember when we say he is risen at Easter? We don't say he rose, although some of the songs do. But we say he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? That, that, the, the tense in Greek is he's in the present and ongoing state of having been risen. Paul used that tense right here. Those who are, are being saved, you're in the present and ongoing state of having been saved. So you are being saved, you have been saved, and you will be saved. But it does talk about something of the present, something of the now, something of you have to participate with God in his process of sanctifying you. To be sanctified, if Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. The process by which he does not leave you that way, we call sanctification. And one of the problems in the church in Corinth is they started talking a lot about freedom and almost nothing about sin. So this is the idea of let's sin all the more so grace can abound. Do you remember what Paul says to that? Ook! Not! No! No! For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That's God's voice. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? See, the Greeks, the sophists, Soph Sophia means wisdom. So the, 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 the sophists of the day, they had this idea that lofty rhetoric and lofty thought was the most important thing. And it kind of morphed in time into nothing that is tangible, nothing that is material, nothing that is sarks, flesh, touchable, tangible, nothing that's corporeal, to use all the big words I can come up with in one sentence, mattered. Only that which was spiritual mattered. And so when he starts talking about foolishness, that God's foolishness, he's going to say that in a minute, God's foolishness is greater than all the world's wisdom. God's not foolish. It's what Paul's saying. He's saying no matter how wise we think we are, before Christ, we could not attain what God would have us be. We cannot understand God by our own reason. So he's countering both the sophists. Actually, there's more than that. He's, count, he's countering the sophists. He's countering those, the patrons, who sometimes are sophists, sometimes aren't. They like to argue about who they follow. He's just countering everything that is, everything that comes natural to us. And he's calling them to do what comes natural to God. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jew, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks. Hold on, I lost my spot there. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and, and foolishness to Gentiles. But, those, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see what he's doing? Here's what a whole bunch of people think is the most important thing. Wisdom. And the Jews want to see God be powerful. Remember when, when, when they would say, give us a sign, give us a sign. He goes, I'm only going to give you one sign. That's the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Belly of a fish. I think he died and was regurgitated to go preach the gospel of God to the Ninevites, the enemies. Jesus says, in the same way, I've come to preach to those who are enemies of God. And what the sign you're going to see is absurdity. It's absurd. If we really think about it, the God of the universe, the all-powerful being, the one who created everything, the one who speaks so that you wake up in the morning, he decided that the way to make us right with him was to become one of us, die in our stead, and take the sting out of death. That's why it looks foolish. If you were in first century Rome or in the Middle East in the first century under the Greco-Roman Empire, and you said you worship a crucified man... That's a criminal. It's a non-Roman citizen who's a criminal. It is indeed foolishness to the world around. So Jesus, and then Paul says that, that, that Jesus is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. So he's countering what everyone is saying isn't there with the fact that God knows better than they do. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. This is when he's talking to kind of the blue-collar folks. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then just a few verses in, in chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. 
And he's telling them what he's telling us. See, the scriptures mean what they meant. And if you walk through, and I challenge you to do this, to read the entire book, Paul's first letter, first recorded letter, first letter that we have, we think that there were two or three others before this that have not been preserved. But read this letter and see Paul's response to the issues that present themselves there. See, this in, in Corinth, this was a first century culture war. What's going to rule? What's going to define who Christians are? Is it going to be Apollos? Is it going to be Paul? Cephas? Is it going to be wisdom of the world? Is it going to be promiscuity with temple prostitutes? One guy in this church who was a leader was having an affair with his stepmother, and people were praising it. Folks, we're in a culture war, but the people who don't believe like we believe are not our enemy. The enemy who's deceiving them is our enemy. And how do we show them a different way? By living differently. By not quarreling. Let's say that in the upcoming governor's race, the person that you support doesn't get elected. How do you treat the people who voted for the one who did? As if they're foolish? Or do you actually congratulate them? I don't want to do that. But I know that my mother in 2016, who did not tell her friends who she voted for, they assumed she voted for the one who they didn't like. And so for three years, they did not speak to her. And they're Christians. I'm not pointing a finger. Well, I am literally now. I don't think we understand in our day-to-day lives how big of a deal whose we are is. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the most important thing to you? Is it the most important thing to the church? And should it be the most important thing to the world? If, If you say yes to all of those, then God's got something to work with. A bunch of ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God, and he's going to do powerful and amazing things through us. But if we're honest, is the gospel, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, that changes me from who I want to be to who God wants me to be, if that is, if that is indeed the most important thing for me, It should change me. Am I being changed? Am I being saved? Am I being sanctified? That is what Paul is calling the individuals in the church in Corinth and the church in Corinth as a whole. This whole book, he's calling them back to participating with Christ in their own sanctification. Christ is responsible for the sanctification. Christ is responsible for making us who he wants us to be. But he does expect us every day with the work he's doing in us to say this, yes, my Lord.
If the world is going to hear about Jesus, they're going to hear about it through people who are completely, wholeheartedly, unabashedly convinced that Christ is the only way. So I'm just asking you today, in the 21st century culture war, who do you belong to? A political party? A worldview? A grievance culture? Or to Christ? Because if you belong to Christ, fear not. If you belong to Christ, you trust that come what may, your salvation is secure and the salvation of anyone you share the gospel with and responds in obedience to Christ is secure. So nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Humans are humans. And when we have cultures and civilizations, we behave the same way. We have more technology, so we hear about all the stuff in ways that they didn't then. But the culture of Corinth, New York City, Las Vegas, Nevada, and San Francisco, California, all tied into one, became the culture of the church. And I don't think anyone in here would say, good for them. Paul certainly doesn't. So let's be on guard to make sure that Christ and Christ alone, Christ in him crucified, Christ in him resurrected, is central not only to what we do here, but who we are there. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country, but more so, Lord, thank you for the freedom we have in you. We are free to choose who we submit to, and we choose you. So, Lord, make us new. Renew in us a right spirit. And if there's sin in our lives, convict us of it. Show us specifically what we're doing and what we, should be, what we shouldn't be doing and what we should be doing. Help us choose to do what comes natural to you instead of what comes natural to us. Give us courage, Lord, to be fully, completely, wholeheartedly sold out because of the person, the work, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.